There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. When is the question we're asking on the show today? When should you take a nap, have your first coffee of the day, schedule meetings, quit your job, get married? That escalated quickly. The big question. What are the scientific secrets of perfect timing is the big question today. As we review this book, When... The Scientific Secrets to Perfect Timing uh, by Daniel H. Pink. So I'm also going to add my own question to that. So why do these secrets even matter? That's the first thing that I thought when I picked this up. Why is timing, as they say, everything? According to Daniel Pink, we get so caught up in asking how and why that we've neglected one of the biggest questions of all. When should we do all of these things. First of all, it'd be interesting to introduce our guest in the studio, Jamal Almawa. Jamal is the founder and managing director of Gambit Communications, a PR, social media and influencer engagement agency that handles brands like Ferrari, Ritz-Carlton, Jeep and Alfa Romeo. So let's bring the conversation back to books to start with, I think, because at the very beginning of this book, he actually says that if you visit any bookstore or library, you'll see a shelf of 12 stacked books with how to do various things so many that it requires its own genre a how-to genre do you actually agree with that or do you think that he's just setting this up so that he can justify why he's written this book well good morning annabelle good morning to the viewers um i think he starts it off with a very uh, a very clear um you know setting the scene where he says that we always focus on what you know the the how to do things and he's saying for he's looking at the the um, the research that shows that the when is just as important and i think what's interesting for me was the amount of research that he quotes in this book shows that this has been an area that has been um very meticulously researched um and so it is important to have a book like this that finally talks about the findings um and i think it's the first time i've seen a book that focuses on this that aspect of it and the way it's written is quite interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't he doesn't just take you through all of the research. He actually starts with a really interesting hook in every single chapter. And in the start of the book, as he's introducing this concept, he starts with the sinking of the Lusitania, for, of, of all things. Yes, he does. Um, and he tells the story um, of the, the way the Lusitania sank. And it's something I wasn't aware of, but the fact that the um, the captain of the ship made a huge mistake um, when he was um, getting it basically to port and that he they, they knew that there were German U-boats around and they needed to get there as fast as possible um, to avoid being uh, hit by torpedoes. And for some reason, just as he approached it, he did a 40-minute technique um, to figure out their position rather than a five-minute one. Um, and people are trying to understand why. And what he's saying is that the argument he's giving is, is that it's because it happened in the afternoon. And in the afternoon, our judgment tends to drop. So why is it? So let's start with that, because that's the first question that he asked about timing. Why should we never make important decisions in the afternoon? What's so terrible about the afternoon? Yeah, so the premise of the book, and I think his main, his biggest argument here is that um, research, you know, so much research has shown that we, our circadian rhythms, our biological clock goes through um, a peak in the morning and then it dips um, a trough in the afternoon and then lifts again in the evening. Now why that happens, they don't know, but they've found it has been consistent across all cultures, you know, all countries, different people, men and women. Um, and so what he's saying is, is that in the morning, because we're on, we have this, um, this high uh, and this, uh, uh, we're more positive, we're more likely to make good decisions and we're more attentive. Uh, and then as we go into the afternoon, it begins to dip. And as it dips, we start to become 
um, less attentive to detail, make more mistakes, um, and and be more irritable. Um, so one example, he said that judges were giving out uh, gave out harsher sentences in the afternoon, and then I think as you go past five o'clock, it suddenly goes up again and keeps rising into the evening until we go to bed. And I think what's interesting is he shows the um, graphs of having done research on people. Even people have slightly different t- chronotypes, different, you know, whether they get up a bit later and their, their peak comes later, they still have the same pattern of peak, trough, peak again. Could you explain what a chronotype is before we go any further? Yeah, so basically that's, I mean, it's, it's the biological clock, but what he says is there are different types of people. So 80% of us will have the same chronotype, which means that we go with the morning high, afternoon dip, mm. evening high. But there are then um, outliers called larks and owls. So a lark is somebody who's much earlier. So his pattern starts much earlier and he will potentially rise in the afternoon and dip in the evening. Um, and owls are people who are much later. And, you know, we always say night owls, people who do their best writing in the, you know, in the middle of the night. There is also uh, a chronotype for that. And interestingly, he shows how through your life the chronotype changes as well. So as we, those of us who have, have had small children know they get up very, very early, but then become teenagers, that they become yeah. much more of an, of an owl than a lark. So it's not a set pattern either, which is it's fascinating to, to read. Yeah, so, a, so it depends on your environment and you can train yourself to be a certain way or? Well, no, actually, that's what's interesting. He, he says it's, it's, uh, it's something that's biological and cannot change. But what does change is that, yes, children are ge- uh, young children are generally larks. And then as they become uh, teenagers, they become owls. And then they, they, they you know, become the same as everyone else. There's a lot of parents right now <laughs> nodding going, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So different chronotypes, that's something that comes up quite a bit in the book. And all of the science is very interesting behind these these dips, these troughs, these peaks. But how does that work in the context of a nine to five work environment? And is, is what he's saying in this that we are going to have to fundamentally change the way that we work and live? I think the argument he's making is that we have to start looking at timings of things as a m- much more than just um, cool fads that you have at work. Because, you know, there are some offices that have the um, nap pods for people to take a, to have a nap for an hour mm. and so on. And we see it as something that, you know, cool companies do. Um, but he's, he's actually arguing that there is a real scientific basis for this. And he talks a lot about breaks and the importance of taking breaks throughout the day. Um, and one of the segments says that the research shows that you should be working you know, optimally working 52 minutes and then taking a 17 minute break, um, which to employers might sound terrible, but that's what they found gave the best um, employee performance. 52 and 17. Yeah. That's not what happens in most offices <laughs> that I'm aware of. Plus an, plus an afternoon nap. Yeah. Plus, an afternoon, plus an, nap. an afternoon nap. But I think what he's also saying is he within the book, he makes he's well aware that not everyone can actually fit into this. Yeah. And then not everybody's in control. And then that's another interesting part. He talks about how um, satisfaction in, in your job is also related to how much control you have over how you can work and how you can set your own yeah. parameters and timings. But I suppose part of it is just that we're aware. And as, as once you're aware of where your liabilities are, I think that does make a difference in how you um, act. And I think there's also a much more dangerous uh, undertone to this, which is that they found like very clear research that says doctors make many more mistakes like you know statistically much higher in the afternoon than they do in the morning and he was saying that if you're going to go for a procedure or an operation you should always try to book it between morning and, and 12 or 1 because statistically between 1 and 4 and 5 you have much more mistakes and more patient deaths yeah and he talks about accidents on the road mm. as well and uh, not detecting polyps in things like colonoscopies mm-hmm. and yeah. anesthetists making more mistakes and lack of um less hand washing happening between the hours of 2 and 4 like people just get more complacent. Yeah. yeah. And he also does show there where hospitals have noted this and have tried to imp- implement um, procedures to 
to affect it and it has made a difference. So yeah. Again, and I think that's really the aware. application of the research. Mm. Something else he does very well is at the end of each chapter, he tries to give you the actual applications of what he's just said. So he says, this is what you can do to, to kind of change your life. He talks about when you should nap and, when, and as you said before, when you should have coffee and so on. Yeah, I've got big questions about that one. Um, so Julie Mallon has texted in. We're talking about timing. She says, as a sleep consultant, she can't wait to read it. Um, her husband bumped into a very good friend on, on the morning the bomb went off on the underground in London. Um, apparently her husband got that tube for years and a friend persuaded him to walk. Impeccable timing of friend. That's, that's a great story of timing being perfect. Um, and Christian says, you'd be surprised how many hours go into making 52 minutes of actual work. Productivity in workplaces, especially offices, is notoriously low, which brings us nicely to a sort of recap of everything that we've spoken about so far in terms of the peaks and troughs and when you should be max- how you should be maximizing your day. This is Daniel Pink talking about the dangers of the afternoon dip. That dip is more dangerous than I think we realize. So if you go, if you look at some of the research on afternoons, what you see here is pretty remarkable. Standardized test scores for kids lower in the afternoon than in the morning. Math grades lower in the afternoon, if they take math in the afternoon than Mm -hmm. if they take them in the morning. Um, uh, Anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. with or without a Snickers. Anesthesia errors three times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Fewer polyps detected in colonoscopies. Um, Incredible deterioration in hand washing in hospitals. So there you go. That's just a recap of some of the things that we've been speaking about already. So we're aware of this dip, that there are all sorts of problems involved with that. And, And we mentioned hospitals before. But one thing that I'd like to talk about briefly as we talk about this is education. Now, you heard him talk about test scores there, Flora. And you've worked in the education team at the festival and you have that experience. I mean, how how easy is it to apply some of the things like that from this book into real life? Yeah, it's a really tricky one because it does seem that there's a lot of, of evidence that um, changing start times. I mean, you've got schools that have changed start times for teenagers. So they come in later and they do seem to perform better. And um, switching around test times, it's possible. A lot of schools do have control over some of this, not GCSEs and A-levels, of course. And um, here in Dubai, schools following different curriculums have to take exams at certain times. Um, But one of the problems seems to be social acceptability of what we do and when we do it. And school is tied into work. School, you know, it's partly... um, convenience for the rest of the society society when children go to school and when they come back so I think there's a lot that can be done within schools if they read the research and, and believe it and you know this is just one book it does seem to be compelling but I, I guess there's a lot of evidence that needs to be assessed before you make massive changes to um, a, a big organisation. Flora Reese there from the Emirates Literature Foundation also in the studio with us reviewing this book When by Daniel Pink is Jamal al Mawad, who is founder and managing director of Gambit Communications and you were saying that there are a lot of there's, there's lots of evidence I think that's already around we've heard about things like nap pods in certain companies and, and like you said they're seen as these these special perks but they're not particularly necessary in, in your experience are you going to take away what you've learnt from this book and say schedule less meetings during that two and four o'clock slump period or do you think most of it is is difficult to apply no i think you can absolutely apply it in 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 small doses at the beginning um there are some things like educational curriculum hospitals that that obviously are much bigger governmental decisions but just in a normal workplace like um, our workplace i mean i find for myself i'm the type of person that can if i'm say if i'm writing a press release or something writing generally you need to be in the mood i can spend two hours procrastinating and then suddenly get it done in 15 minutes. And I think that you can eliminate those two hours by, by having those, those 
the naps maybe are something difficult to implement, but you know, you never know. But I think the ideas they say just taking a, a walk for 10 minutes every hour. Um, and I know from my own personal experience doing that, especially if you're walking around where there's nature outside. And he also says that having greenery and so on is um, is a huge positive. He didn't it, write this during the summer yeah, in Dubai. Yeah, he wasn't he? in Dubai either. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You find you, your, your brain wakes up, you know. And the thing is, people tend to resort to coffee and snacks to, to wake themselves up or chocolate bars and stuff. And he's saying that's not it. You know, it's actually a walk or a conversation with someone. And what he says is it's important not to be talking about work when you have that break. So, you know, I think we're all a little yeah. bit guilty of, of going to have a lunch break, but just carrying on the conversation with colleagues. Absolutely. He says you should talk about something entirely different. Yeah, football. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Rugby. Oh, it would be, it'd be right very now. entertaining if you heard me talk about football. Oh, my goodness. Um, so you mentioned about, you know, staying awake and, and coffee as well. So let's talk about the things that any listeners listening right now could implement today or tomorrow in their lives. Let's talk about naps. When is the perfect time to have a nap? Is it live on air right now? Maybe. <laughs> the Spanish had it right. It is a siesta. Okay. The, so basically what he says is, is that start earlier, you know, your, your day, and you, uh, you keep, you'll have optimal performance until around 12. And then about one o'clock is the best time to go and have a nap. Now, here's what's interesting. The, the, you know, the Arab style nap and the Spanish siesta is usually that people will go and sleep for a couple of hours, like one to three o'clock or just after lunch, two to four, and then go back to work. People with double shifts, especially. Um, he says that's not the optimal thing to do. Actually, your nap should not be more than 20 minutes. Oh. And after 20 minutes, performance drops off again because you have the effect of waking up and having to get cortisol levels up to wake you up biologically again. Oh my goodness. And I also, I read that, so the nap has to be 20 minutes, but then you also, when you're setting your alarm, you factor in an extra like five or 10, I think, to allow for drifting off. I think yeah. he says that set your alarm for 25 minutes. But one of the key things he says is to have a cup of coffee first, because it takes about that 20, 25 minutes for the 200 milligrams of caffeine to actually kick into your bloodstream. So if you have your coffee, go to sleep, wake up 20 minutes later, at the moment the coffee's coming in, you'll be wide awake and ready to go. And actually, I think this is true. Personally. Life hacks here on Talking of I was about to say the same. Yeah, it's one of those life hacks that you can try easily and see yeah. what happens. Yeah, because it's only, what, 25 minutes and a cup of coffee. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I suppose you have to make sure that you're not going to be interrupted in those 25 minutes, which is perhaps harder than setting the alarm and get everything yeah. set up for yeah. your nap and, and being allowed to do that in an office space. Yeah, and I yeah. think that the just leading into just uh, what Flora said about... Uh, about people having, you know, in, in schools, for example, students and the importance of, uh, of having those breaks for them. He's also saying that there is a permanence to having setbacks at the beginning of life. Um, and so it's not something where you fix it in school and then later on when they're teenagers, they'll sort it out. Um, he's saying that there is a permanence that ha being having low performances early on continues into life and it results in lower wages and increased uh, anxiety and depression and so on. So there is a real kind of, um, importance of actually looking at these, these statistics and thinking of how to implement them, especially among younger, um, you know, younger people. Well, because we are talking of books and we are reviewing the book, as a kind of reading experience, how did you find this? Is this the kind of thing that you would suggest people just look at articles for, um, get the Spark Notes version, or is it actually a good read? I found it very easy to dip into, which is not the, it is not always the case for these types of books, that sometimes you have to concentrate. So I think it's a good read. I think that the, the, the end of the chapters, the applications, also break it down for you, that you can actually stop and think about what you just read. 
Um, so I think it's a fantastic read, absolutely. And just light enough. It's 220 pages, doesn't drag on for too long. Um, so fantastic read. I agree. I found it quick and entertaining. Um, it's very open and engaging. He's got a nice style. He was a speechwriter for Al Gore for a few years. So, you know, he, he really does know how to deliver information effectively on a big big canvas. Um, and yeah, I did enjoy it. I found some of the health, self-help sections, some of them were very obvious. Some of them required too much effort and some of them were just terrific. And I, I, I did like the ones at the end. It, it, the final chapter talks about, or the penultimate talks about synchronicity, which I found a little bit difficult to tie into the concept of when, but it's about how teams work together um, and, and how um, group timing, a sort of group timing um, works to become more productive. So there's really interesting examples about um, people delivering food in India to from home home cooked food from home to desk. And I found it a bit difficult to work exactly how it tied into the overall time argument, but I, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, but this and the some of the the things he said about teamwork and drawing them together about singing in in synchron, synchronicity. Um, and there's some lovely exercises. It'd be great if you're doing drama improv as well. I think bringing people together. Well, he even said that the best uh, the uh, the best you know chorus and so on they, they will they hold hands while they're mm-hmm. singing because it improves their synchronicity. And uh, as Flora said, I think that the the idea of synchronicity doesn't tie in exactly to what he's talking about for the rest of the book. But it is because it's more behavioral, I think, mm-hmm. than temporal. But it is an interesting, uh, also an interesting you know findings to think about. Holding hands while singing. I bet you there was an entire group of people listening then who just who just cringed yeah. at the thought of having to do that. But it does work according to Daniel Pink, doesn't it? It improves synchronicity. He talks about rowing, uh, rowing teams, that yeah. how well they do when they're all, you know, everyone has to be exactly on the same rhythm. Um, so very interesting. Again, difficult to relate in terms of applications, but interesting in terms of those findings. And he's very good at making those stories feel very real. Um, so a couple of things that we didn't actually manage to get to. I'm going to kick off with this quote. Time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. What is that all about, Flora? So that may or may not be Groucho Marx, but this is um, used as a quote in the very final chapter of the book. He's called Thinking in Tenses, and it's about how we use the language of time, that the word itself is a verb, an adjective, and a noun, and how difficult it can be to translate. Um, And so because it has so many multiple uses and time pervades our language and covers our thoughts even more deeply. Um, And it's very interesting. He talks about how different languages use the concept of time. There are languages where um, the past, sorry, present and future are very similar in the use of language and use of tenses. So um, I go to the cinema can be seen in, in, in other languages as I am going to cinema, whereas in English you always differentiate very clearly between um, the present and, that's and the not future, a thing in other languages. and it's not a thing in in, in, in every other language, and um, it actually has an impact on how people see the future. So people who use the present and future and future tenses are very close close to each other um, seem to plan better and save more than those who see their future self as very distant to the person they are today. That is fascinating. Um, let's also talk about midlife crises while while we're talking about the future. Yeah. Well, so he mentions something interesting here. He says that the concept of a midlife crisis um, is basically a fallacy. It doesn't exist. And he says what it comes back to is there is no specific moment where people decide that they're going to buy a, you know, a, a sports a car and, and they, a motorcycle, <laughs> you know, and, and so on. But the but what he does say is that, and this is so interesting. So across all cultures, across all countries, they've found the same thing: is that light, people's um, happiness with their own life. Um, is and satisfaction with their life follows a U-curve. So it starts off that um, from childhood up to early adulthood that people are generally very happy with their life. Um, as they enter the 40s and 50s, there is a huge dip. 
um, where it goes down. And then as they exit the 50s, it goes up again and they become happy. And I think he said that as you, know, as you exit the 50s, um, as you said before, Annabelle, um, people start to find more meaning and start to think about um, the, you know, the, the, what they've done rather than what they've lost. Um, so that was that was one one thing I found interesting. The other thing that I found very interesting is the idea of temporal markers, um, and the fact that what he said is that you can you can choose a specific moment and say this is going to be uh, a clean slate or a new beginning, um, and that's why, for example, everyone starts their diets on New Year's. Um, that's why they found a much higher proportion of people at the age of 29, 39, 49, so the last year of their decade of their life, will enter marathons or you know, do things that they've never done, learn a new language or something. It's because as they're in the last year of that decade, they suddenly start wanting to wrap it up in a, in a, in a meaningful way. Um, and one interesting temporal marker for the listeners is that to, um, today is 101 days until the end of the year. So if you start a diet or learning a musical instrument tomorrow, you have 100 days to finish it. That is very useful knowledge. Thank you so much, Jamal, for, for letting us know. 101 days. So we have 100 days to basically change our life. And then, and then if we don't manage to do it, then New Year's is another... Another temporal marker. Okay, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> well, I think that's as good a place as any to leave it for now. That's all we've got time for, unfortunately, funnily enough, for the book about time. Um, thank you, Jamal, for joining us to review that and Flora as well for all your thoughts on the book. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.